Welcome to The Source from the ATA, conversations about telehealth and virtual care from the thought leaders, experts, and visionaries who are working to change the way the world thinks about healthcare. I'm Joe Kavidar, president of ATA, and today I'm thrilled to sit down for a conversation with Dr. Suchi Saria. Dr. Saria is the founder and CEO of Bayesian Health. I'm sure we'll talk more about that and is a leading expert on applying artificial intelligence, machine learning, and we're gonna talk more about those terms, and predictive analytics to optimize care delivery. She has a long list of very impressive accomplishments. She's been selected as Popular Science's Brilliant 10, the IEEE's Artificial Intelligence's 10 to Watch, National Academies of Medicine Emerging Leader in Health and Medicine, World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, She holds the John C. Malone Endowed Chair at Hopkins, where she's worked alongside their health system leadership to bring new approaches to increasing efficiency and quality. Dr. Saria is also the research director of a large center at Hopkins at the intersection of AI, engineering, and healthcare. And we're really honored that she was able to join us as a keynote speaker for our ATA 2020 annual conference this past June. Suchi, thanks so much for joining me today and welcome to The Source. Absolutely, Joe. Thanks for having me. So I uh, have spoken frequently over the years about the provider shortage uh, in contrast with the demand for healthcare services we're facing and uh, always talk myself about this notion of one-to-many care models and how we need to do what other service delivery organizations have done many long before us in terms of inserting a digital front end and software and the like in, in between the healthcare provider and the patient so that we can leverage providers across more and more patients or a larger populations. And I know that's something you've thought a bit about and how artificial intelligence uh, could help with that. So maybe you could start by telling us how that would work and and how AI and telehealth could augment short staffing both in and out of our hospitals. So I think the short answer is pretty much everywhere. So maybe we can start with kind of areas that uh, systems are thinking about and using now with, uh, you know, COVID's top of mind, right? So First, previously, you know, we were used to caring for patients, like systems and doctors were used to caring for patients when the patients are right in front of them. So imagine like patients inside the four walls of the hospital, they're there for a particular reason. You're, you know, giving them what they need right then and there. And then one might say out of sight, out of mind after that. And, you know, healthcare's obviously changed um, and COVID's made that change happen very rapidly. Um, but it's not just COVID alone. Uh, a lot of diff- things are happening that's uh, steering this change. Um, the fact that, um, you know, patients want convenient ac- access to care in a much more convenient way. You know, if they have kids at home, they don't want to have to leave their kids alone, run to an appointment for follow-up care where all they need after is, you know, some simple checkups. You know, is that the sort of thing that can be done remotely? And so, Uh, Coming back to the question you asked, which is where does AI play into all of this? Where does virtual care play into all of this? Um, Imagine from a health system leader's standpoint, where previously you were caring for the patients that were right in front of you, that was 
you know, you could, it was easier to think about now that you don't see your patients. They're not right in front of you. They may be at home. They may be accessing care in different care locations and you still want to be able to give them the best care possible that stitches together all of the data and all of your experiences you have with this patient that tells you where they are, what where they're at, so that you can deliver them the right care. And in order to do that, it's just really hard. Like you need the ability to be able to stitch together, call together all that data, figure out what is relevant for this patient at that moment of time, figure out what they're going to be responsive to. So even when we think about follow-on care, is med adherence the problem for this patient? If so, educating them in order to reduce barriers to med adherence will be important. But knowing right then and there in the moment, right, when you're not there with this patient 24-7, knowing right then and there in the moment, what about this patient is most relevant? What about them do I need to know in order to be most effective in giving them the care they need, the instructions they need, the context they need in order to be able to do what they need to do to become better and become better faster. And and previously in healthcare, we would throw bodies up at every problem, right? Like that's our general style in, uh, you know, essentially, you know, if you might think, okay, well, maybe I have to call all of the doctor's offices and I have to figure out the data and then I have to look at through all of their record and then I have to synthesize in my head what was most relevant and then I make a phone call. And reality is we don't have time to do all that. So you just make a phone call and then it's kind of almost like a cold call. But if you had all of this right context, you knew what meds they were on, you knew that they've been at risk for readmission, you know they tend to have... Um, uh, you know, uh, they don't have a whole lot of family support, for example, then that's really going to color how you reach out to them, how you talk to them, how you engage them. And all of that is so much faster when you have the help of a smart person. Think of it like a smart person who just did the job for you, who collected the data, who culled through it, who figured out what was relevant, who figured out where the big problems are going to be, who figured out what do you need to be able to engage with this patient on. And now that's what the help you're getting with AI. And you can effectively then use, you know, all of those pointers to be very effective when you're engaging with patients. So that's just one example. And this is as patients are sort of moving and asking for care in different environments, you could ask for the same things inside the hospital, right? Like with COVID, one of the big problems have been uh, staff shortages because we need more care pulmonologists, like the uh, physicians who are more experienced um, in the condition to be caring for these patients, but there's not enough of them. Um, and in New York City, we experience this problem front and center. And um, the question is, but here it's the problem is even worse. It's not that um, you don't just have enough crit care pulmonary uh, crit care physicians. It's that it's also a new condition. So not everybody's trained, like your hospitalists aren't trained in all the signs of deterioration. So this is where, you know, AI can come to your rescue by being able to use the data to, to learn and identify these at-risk patients so you can really start to focus on your, your attention on the patients who need it the most. Yeah, very, very exciting. And, and I, I think those are wonderful uh, examples. I wonder, we, we do have a, a really broad uh, listenership for this particular uh, podcast. So I think it would be really helpful for our listeners if you took us through just a couple of definitions, maybe predictive analytics, machine learning, 
artificial intelligence in, in whatever order you want. And, and if there are other things you think need to be thrown in that, to that mix of definitions, uh, I'd, I'd leave that to you as well. Sure. Um, so, so AI is really, um, you know, AI is kind of often misunderstood as just a collection of techniques, but it really is like a field. The way at least, uh, you know, we see it is, you know, it emerged in the 60s, 70s, when we were first starting to think about, you know, how can we learn, you know, humans are smart, how can we learn from humans? And how can we then program smart computers? And so the number of techniques that have been built in order to build smart computers, that's ever expanding. And um, in the field, we first started by building uh, smart computers by programming them based on intuition, we learn from humans. So we'd watch how a human would do it. For example, if they were walking around in an environment and they're trying to navigate, what are the rules they're using for navigating? So for example, maybe they're trying to figure out how much, where there's clear space, where the barriers and obstacles are. So then how do you recognize what a barrier or obstacle is? Well, you look for certain uh, features that tell you what a barrier and obstacle look like. And so early AI systems were very much programmed based on understanding how humans would do the task and then codifying those rules based on how humans would do the task. And um, and then as in the late 90s, early 2000s, some of the techniques that were more based on statistical, like learning from data, if you will, like started to kind of take increasingly get more attention. And so here the goal was instead of me programming to do it exactly the way humans would do it, can I instead teach the computer and teach it by, you know, how we would teach kids, like teach it by showing them examples, teach it by giving them a reward. Like, you know, um, if they do something well, you give, say, good job. And if they do something poorly, you say, not quite. And that then is feedback. And and so the whole field uh, started having increasingly. So there are all these names and confusing names like reinforcement learning, semi-supervised learning, supervised learning, classification, uh, you know, a myriad names. But it, but at the end of the deep learning, all of the above, but at the end of the day, the principles are quite simple. And the principle is, can I some way teach a computer to learn? And when we're designing algorithms, what we're doing is designing algorithms to teach the computer how to learn. And there are different ways to teach. And as we uncover new ways of teaching, these new ways of teaching then feed, turn into ways in which computers can learn faster, better, from less data, in more complicated scenarios, and so on and so forth. I've never heard it done uh, explained quite that succinctly. So uh, as I always learn from talking to uh, other folks, I've, I've learned my at least one thing from this. I very much appreciate that. I want to turn to talking about finances for a minute. Um, the one of the significant impacts of the pandemic is the financial uncertainty that health healthcare systems are now facing. It where I work, we've lost uh, I think a billion and a half dollars over the last few months. We're we're coming out of it now, but that's a, a big hit for a nonprofit that lives on a three percent margin in a good year. Um, my question to you is is where can we use these tools AI broadly? Uh, to to provide value and ROI to to telemedicine and potentially to grow hospital revenue. Great question. I think what is really I completely understand the plight of like small margins here. And what is amusing and amazing to me is there are so many opportunities that are not currently tapped. Let's just start with something simple like 
patients coming in and getting admitted into the wrong side of care, right? So let's say you started, you admit a patient who didn't need to be there. They, they could have really been in the OBS or they could have been in cared for at home. And now you're wasting a bed on somebody who didn't need it and often losing reimbursement on that patient. Second, they come in, they end up um, getting, let's, you know, now a lot of contracts um, are sort of very much, you, you know, a lot of health systems have contracts tied to reimbursements based on performance, some version of performance, right? Total cost of care or some version of length of stay, some version of quality. And even simple things like, you have a patient, let's say this patient has, uh, you know, give you a simple example, like patient ends up be having a complication like pressure ulcer, sepsis, very, the, if they end up having these hacks, they're very, very expensive patients. And so the question is, could you identify them early and treat them in a timely way? If you're able to do that, you end up cutting length of stay, you end up cutting expensive ICU bed use. These patients are much more likely to end up needing a sniff. If you're any kind of bundle contract, you know, your readmissions and your post-acute care costs are tying right into what you get, you know, how how the, how much you get paid from either direct cut of the savings or some kind of bonus pool or some kind of penalty. And so here in this case, you know, if you can avoid the complication altogether or treat this patient in a timely way, you may end up turning a patient from where they would have gone to a sniff. Now they end up going into home health or home care. And so a less expensive patient. You mentioned revenue in particular, revenue generating. Um, you know, again, here patients, there are many patients who need care. They're right now at home and they're too afraid to come into the hospital. But if you're able to, you know, leverage your own data to understand who are these patients who actually need care in very particular ways where they're actually, you know, they should be coming in and they should be, or they should be getting outreach through home health or through telehealth uh, or through an outpatient clinic, or, or perhaps if it's something really critical, they ought to come in and get admitted for a procedure. And all of those, you know, it's possible now to take your data and do much more proactive uh targeted outreach where if you understand patient you understand the data you can you know identify you know look at the clinical picture at the patient level in a very very personalized way identify you know who is this patient and what do they need and then do that targeted outreach and and you know do it in a way that makes it very easy and simple to you know to deliver high quality care while not losing revenue yeah yeah thank you for that uh, I, I'm curious about, I'm going to ask you a little bit about some some terminology. Um, and I, I'm part of the uh, American Academy of Dermatology's uh, team of folks that are doing work on AI. And, and uh, there was a consensus that the right term for us anyway was augmented intelligence. Um, I must say I was I'm a little skeptical that that's that's just a nod to to people that are afraid of losing their jobs. Maybe, maybe we'll come back to that. But let me ask you: is is there a difference between AI automation, AI augmentation? Um, what what are the primary benefits? Maybe explain those to us, uh, or or are they both uh, used together? Yeah. So uh, that's a really fun question. I think. Um, as someone who is, uh, you know, as a like, as someone who loves dreaming and building, I think uh, 
really the world's our oyster here in thinking through what's possible and whether it's automation, whether it's augmentation, whether it's both. Um, I think it really varies by application, but the simple answer is really all of the above. Um, there are scenarios where, uh, you know, it's going to be plain and simple automation that's really going to make a difference. So for example, uh, you have a ton of images to see and you're trying to figure out what are the most critical images that need attention, like, you know, chest x-rays. Can we, can we read chest x-rays quickly where right now maybe you have a shortage of radiologists uh, who are scanning these images or you want to be able to use the time efficiently to focus on the ones that need the most timely care. Let's say patients are waiting in the ED. You've got huge waiting room times. And now if, um, you know, you could have a way by which you look at your chest x-rays in an automated way and order them, like you're sequencing them in the ones that most likely have something time sensitive and critical that, uh, that uh, you, you know, your radiologists start to look at first or your ED physicians need to look at first. That would be one example of automation, right? So you're not, you're, you know, you're accelerating the process by kind of uh, doing something that maybe humans could do, but it would take them a long time to do. And by automate, but, but then you still have the autonomy where, uh, you know, physicians are coming in on the back end and then looking at the ones that really need attention in more detail uh, first. A different example would be, uh, of augmentation would be something like uh, diabetic retinopathy, where, you know, in the... Uh, Outpatient settings, if you know, like uh, there are now many um, solutions for this, but like when you take retinal images from retinal images, being able to automatically identify whether the patient has diabetic retinopathy, that's not something doctors used to do and definitely didn't do in the outpatient setting. And so that's an example where suddenly in the outpatient setting, physicians are able to do more because AI is helping them creating a tool to be able to identify a condition they couldn't previously uh, recognize. I could also give you examples of both. So some really fascinating examples of both automation and augmentation are conditions like sepsis and pressure ulcers. And um, in these examples, so for instance, obviously in sepsis, there are critical care intensivists who know how to care for septic patients. But from an augmentation standpoint, the signs of detecting sepsis early and very early and precisely are not part of the medical curriculum today. So it's not something where they, it's you know codified and so it's just a case of automation. So here, computers can help you learn from vast amounts of data. You know, there's, the symptoms are very heterogeneous across different populations, but by using vast amounts of data, we can identify and learn the signs of what early signs of sepsis look like and augment the physician's ability to be able to do that. And then from an automation standpoint, make it very easy to cull all of it, all of the relevant things from, you know, this encounter, but maybe the past encounter that gives you a sense of what this patient's baseline ought to be and why you think this is something like sepsis and pull it all together so that it's very, very fast for the physician to evaluate and treat in a timely way. So it's an example of like, Smart automation, but augmentation very much tied to it to create a value add. Same thing in pressure ulcers, right? Nurses are spending tons and tons of time. Like we've taught, uh, you know, systems out there, like, you know, right now, today, 
there's no systematic way by which you can identify high-risk patients. So, you know, there are various scoring systems. It takes a long time to implement. And, uh, you know, nurses uh, are running these kinds of scoring systems on a, you know, daily basis, takes them 20, 30 minutes in doing thorough evaluations. And yet we often miss developing pressure ulcers. With COVID, this is an even bigger problem because, you know, patients are in the hospital for a long time. So it's really easy to develop these conditions. And so with machine learning and AI, you can identify, um, you know, using the data, again, an example of augmentation, all of the factors that create who are the patients who are at high risk. Once you identify that, it makes it really easy for them to focus thorough evaluations. They're saving them a ton of time, but also making sure that the interventions, which are very expensive to do, the right patients are getting them. Well, it, it's so much fun talking to you about this, and, and I know we could go on for, for a, a very long time and to, and to hear sort of the passion uh, in, in your voice and, and your, uh, just, just how much uh, excitement you bring to the field. Uh, I wanted to, to ask, and I probably should have asked this first, but here we are close to wrapping up. What was it about this field that caught your attention, that, that was the aha moment? How, why did you choose to devote your career to this work? What, what led you down the path and what inspires you to continue? So, Joe, I, that's such a fun question. So um, it's funny. Uh, the way I got involved was very, very odd. So I was, you know, I, like I've mentioned, as a kid, I was like a total tinkerer and builder, um, very young. Um, you know, in fifth grade, I was reading this book and it said, And I lived in India and, uh, you know, uh, the next generation of computers are going to be AI uh, systems. And this was, you know, back a a while ago. And as I was reading it, that sort of really caught my imagination. And I, you know, so that got me really interested. And so I started robotics and kind of building robots and very early days of, um, you know, like, Uh, learning in terms of like building robotics using machine learning. So how do you learn from data and build ways to navigate uh, environments? Like some of my early projects were trying to do sensing for navigation, planning for navigation. I even remember actually um, being super frustrated by something as simple as, you know, in an image, I, you know, I had also the uh, blessing of working with some really, really smart people who were very experienced in the field, but who took me on as a mentee when I was very young. And so, you know, they gave me this task of being able to recognize uh, colors because we wanted to be able to recognize obstacles. And so colors and obstacles in an image. And I was like, you know, I don't even know how to recognize some simple things like, you know, a red apple in an image. So it was just funny. I, I, and I discovered these were like fundamental problems in the field that, you know, people have been re- doing research on it. it was always surprising to me, like, as humans, we're so good at these kinds of tasks, like, you know, even a kid can take an image and learn like, okay, here's a red apple, but for computers, some of these tasks were really hard. So, so I started robotics, you know, mostly worked on planning and navigation and trying to approach those problems from a machine learning standpoint. And, you know, fast forward, fast forward, kind of ended up on really, really fun projects. And many of these were early sci-fi-like projects. So, like, mm-hmm. it was part of this big project, uh, with which was a multi-university project called Kalo, like C-A-L-O, funded by DARPA to build a smart assistant. 
And these, you know, we were doing things like, you know, the agent would sit on a computer, call everything, your like your emails and documents, and then try to do things like uh, when you're when you're typing the next email, predict who else you might want to include in the email, or when you're saving a document, which folder might you want to send it to? Features that you think are totally ubiquitous now, but early days. It was very much like we didn't know these were possible to build. We were experimenting with different machine learning techniques for being able to uh, build these kinds of uh, features. And then, you know, fast forward, this ends up uh, becoming, uh, you know, uh, uh, this ends up becoming like it was a massive project funded by DARPA. And this ends up becoming gets things spun out into this thing called Siri which then I guess eventually ended up at Apple. Um, so really just very early fun projects, all really, really interesting. And then, of course, you know, as, I, as one grows up, you start realizing, okay, well, all of that was really fun and hard and sci-fi like, but, you know, I really want to do something meaningful. And uh, I had a personal life incident as well that sort of moved me closer and closer to healthcare. Thank you so much for spending the time with uh, me today. And it's uh, always a pleasure and it was fun today. We could go on for hours, I know. Uh, if, if you listeners are interested in hearing more, you can listen to Dr. Saria's keynote address from the recent ATA 2020 virtual conference. You'll find her talk and all of the other conference content at www.gotelehealth.org. If you weren't able to join us for the event, you can still purchase access to view all of the session recordings, which are now available through next June. Check out the website for more details, and thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening to The Source from the ATA. We want to hear from you. What topics should we cover? Who would you like to hear from? To share your comments and suggestions, and for more information about the ATA, telehealth, and virtual care, please visit our website, americantelemed.org, and our American Telemed accounts on LinkedIn and Twitter. Finally, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast on your favorite platforms. It really makes a difference. Copyright 2020 ATA. All rights reserved.